Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off as appropriate. And for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion this afternoon is Romina Baccia. She is our Grover M. Herman Research Fellow in Federal Budgetary Affairs and also serves as Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Prior to joining us here in 2011, she was a policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and covered regulatory issues involving labor, the internet, and energy policy. She received her master's degree in economics from George Mason University and a bachelor of science degree in economics from GMU with a concentration in data analysis. Please join me in welcoming Romina Baccia. Romina? Thank you, John. I'm going to stay seated because we're going to have a, a panel discussion today rather than speeches. Um, good afternoon. I am thrilled to um, host this distinguished panel of experts to discuss Heritage's budget proposal for Congress and the administration, and I'm excited that you are joining us. The Heritage Foundation's Blueprint for Balance represents a detailed policy agenda for Congress to balance the budget, not just without raising taxes, cutting taxes further, while ensuring a strong national defense and protecting individual liberty and economic freedom. Fiscal year 2019 spending bills are currently in full swing in Congress, and lawmakers are setting spending priorities for this year and the years ahead as we speak. The, they will benefit particularly from this blueprint which targets the spending bills for next year. The House Budget Committee is also getting ready to release its budget proposal with markup scheduled for this week. While its prospects are glim speaking, this being an election year, we should not forego the important mechanisms that the budget process provides for making progress on our unsustainable fiscal situation. For Congress to forego its most powerful fiscal tool this year, reconciliation, that would allow it to pursue savings and policy reforms would be a grave mistake. Now is the time to prove to the American people that lawmakers care about fiscal responsibility and that they are willing to do the hard work required to put our nation's fiscal footing on a better path. At the same time, the Joint 
Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Process Reform is holding hearings to identify and recommend reforms to improve the budget process this fall. This blueprint also provides critical guidance for this committee as well. Reform is critical to reviving fiscal discipline in Washington and to prevent a fiscal crisis, which is growing every day, from undermining economic growth, opportunity, and prosperity for Americans. But this blueprint is not just about dollars and cents. It's ultimately about freeing the American people to thrive and prosper by right-sizing the federal government and reining in the bureaucracy to protect and strengthen individual liberty, economic freedom, and to build a strong civil society. And with that, I'd like to introduce our panel. Um, and I will be asking them questions and also leave some time for questions from the audience at the end. First, I'm uh, pleased to introduce uh, Steve Moore. Um, he is the former Grover M. Herman Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, uh, a position he held from 1984 to 1987. And Steve also wrote for the Wall Street Journal and is currently a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation for the Project for Economic Growth. Um, he returned to Heritage in January of 2014. Um, he also is the founder of the Club for Growth, which was a defining moment in Steve's career. Justin Bogey is a senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Heritage's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Study. In 2016, Justin took a leave of absence from Heritage to serve as budget policy advisor to the Trump presidential campaign, and he also served on the presidential transition team for the Office of Management and Budget. Prior to joining Heritage, he was a, senior, uh, he was a policy advisor for the House Budget Committee under Chairman Price and also Paul Ryan. And Adam Michelle. He focuses on tax policy and the federal budget as policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. His work was critical to the success of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Prior to joining Heritage, he was a program manager for the Spending and Budget Initiative at the Mercatus Center, and he's also currently pursuing his PhD in economics. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Steve, I want to get started with you. Um, this year, and looking at what we went through um, earlier this year and last year, why, is, uh, why do you think budget reform is critical now? Well, Romina, first of all, congratulations on this fantastic report. I, I think um, I was the second person at Heritage to do this. I think back then we called it slashing the budget or something, but it, it takes a, that was back in around 1984 or 85, so 30 years ago, and um, I know how much work goes into this, and it's a fantastic document that needs to be implemented by Congress. It would solve so many of our fiscal problems, so congratulations. Um, the, the budget process is severely broken. I mean, we've had, uh, in 1974, we passed the Budget Control Act, which is essentially how the rules that dictate our budget process. And so, you know, over those... Uh, you know, 40 or so years that's, that's been in existence, we've had uh, 36 budget deficits and, and uh, four uh, budget uh, balanced budgets. That's not a very good record, <laughs> obviously. And one of the things that was a success was the budget caps that were put in place um, 
by John Boehner and the Republicans in Congress after they took Congress uh, control of Congress back in 2011. And it was extremely successful. As you show in your report, you know, domestic and discretionary spending fell very significantly during those years, and it was an effective tool. And the reason that those uh, caps were eliminated was not because they weren't working, but because they were working. And that's something I think we need to point out. Uh, it was by a bipartisan consensus that we do away with budget caps. Um, you know, I, I oftentimes like to blame Democrats for problems, but the Republicans were, I think, equal partners in this fiscal crime of getting rid of the spending caps. And so one of the things I'm really nervous about going forward, Romina, is now there are no guardrails at all. We're, we're essentially operating without any budget caps at all. Now, why does that matter? If you look at um, the, the most recent numbers that came out uh, in April from the Congressional Budget Office, April's a big month because that's when the, uh, when the, the vast majority of the tax revenues come in because people do their taxes before April 15th. You know, the good news of that report was that federal revenues in April of 2018 were up uh, almost 13% from they were, where they were in 2017. So that's a really good number. 13%, I think, was the biggest increase in revenues year over year in something like 20 years. So a great number on revenues. The problem was that on the spending side, the spending was up about 10% over that period. So that's the problem. And incidentally, you know, we do talk about the mandatory programs, and you talk a lot about them in this report, but it was actually the, the mandatory programs were only 6% increase. So it was the it was the discretionary programs that were up um, very significantly. I'd like to see a restoration of the budget caps at the very least. Uh, I love the rescissions. I think it's really important that Congress, if only for symbolic reason, I think it's so critical that Congress approve these fairly minimal Rescissions. If they can't do that, then uh, the, the you know the war really is lost. And then I'll make one other point, which is that uh, look, I'm a big believer that you know, if we're going to get to this path to a balance, which is a great goal to have, we have to have economic growth. You can't, you couldn't possibly get to a balance even if we implemented every one of your cuts. Um, if we didn't have faster economic growth than we've had over the last decade. You just can't get the numbers to add up. You need the revenue growth that comes from, from uh, economic growth. Um, there's a rule of thumb that every one percentage point increase in economic growth reduces the 10-year deficit by about $3 trillion. So we need to get the growth rate, which averaged about 2% under Obama, up to at least 3% under Trump. And that's why, by the way, the tax cuts were so critically important. They, were, they will increase growth. Now, the good news on that score, and I'll kind of end on this, is that the growth rate does look like it's ramped up, and, and not just because of the tax cuts, because of the deregulation and the energy policies and so on. That's going to help a lot. If we can get um, this growth rate up to 3 to 3.5% 3 growth, um, then I think you're going to see um, a, a much improved um, fiscal picture. And then if you combine faster growth, let's say we get, let's say 3.2% growth, and we do your, you know, spending reductions, then we would have, but how fast do we balance under your um, plan? In six, six years. So, you know, we could maybe do it in five. You know, I mean, it's, uh, let me, I know I've t spoken too long, but it really kind of an interesting historical point. I'll never forget, you remember this because you were working in the Congress, back in 1993 when Republic, no, I know, what year was that, 94? 
1975, when Republicans took over Congress for the first time in 50 years, Newt Gingrich was Speaker, Dick Armory was the House Majority Leader. I remember Newt said, we're going to have a plan that balances the budget in seven years. Remember that? And, you know, it's, we got, and everybody said, ah, oh, it can't possibly be done, and John Kasich put together this budget. And what was really interesting about that, I was talking to Newt Gingrich, he was over here at Heritage a couple weeks ago. Um, we were recalling that everyone said it couldn't possibly done, be done, and you know they were right because they didn't. You didn't do it in seven years. What was it? Three or four years? You got to a balanced budget. Why did that happen? We had spending discipline, and the economy boomed. The combination of those two things will get to to balance. Thank you, Steve. Um, on the point you made about uh, taxes and uh, the tax cuts, how they boosted growth, um, I wanted Adam to weigh in a little bit. The, uh, the current blueprint for balance actually recommends to reduce tax revenue uh, further. Can you talk a little bit about that, and will that improve um, the fiscal outlook or make it worse? Um, how should we look at um, the current tax cuts and um, the prospect of future tax cuts? Yeah, th thank you, Romina. So the, the blueprint proposes cut, uh, reducing tax revenue over 10 years by about $400 billion. And what that's, what that's measured against is the CBO baseline, which assumes the tax cuts expire. Most of the tax cuts that, uh, we, that we signed into law in December expire after 2025. The uh, individual rate reductions, the increased standard deduction, the larger child tax credit, uh, some of the business provisions like expensing all go away. And so what, uh, what the biggest thing that our budget does is make all of those tax cuts permanent, uh, making the whole Tax Cuts and Jobs Act extend indefinitely into the future. And that, uh, that is paired with uh, the further removal of about 28 different special interest tax credits that, that we detail in a new chapter in the, in the budget. And so those two things combined uh, allow us uh, to, to continue the good economic news that we've already been seeing after tax reform. Because the, the, sort of the incentive effects of, of temporary tax cuts are not nearly as strong as permanent tax cuts, where the, the, the difference between sort of what CBO assumes, uh, tax cuts growing the economy by about 0.7%, which is, is probably in and of itself a lower number than it should have been, if we can just make those tax cuts permanent, the economy could be, be 2 3% larger uh, over the long run than, than what CBO assumes. And our baseline actually... Uh, actually uses the CBO economic um, forecast. So uh, if, if you incorporate what will truly uh, be going on in the economy with permanent tax cuts, a, fa a larger economy will balance significantly sooner than what the sort of numbers say. Thank you, Adam. Justin, can you talk a little bit about what policies in the, in the heritage blueprint drive us toward uh, balance? How do we get there? Sure, and and just you know to reiterate, we balance in just six years, so it's, so it's a really definite change of pace from where we are right now. And to back up what both Steve and, and Adam said, um, you know, growth growth and 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 continuing these pro growth tax policies are definitely part of what gets us to balance. Um, but you also have you know we've kind of we've done this first step in tax reform. We're we're started starting to head down the right path on, on that aspect. Um, but now it's really time to confront the spending side, and that's something that we've been uh, reluctant to, to do. And so we really here uh, present an, and just an overarching strategy that touches basically every area of the federal budget. Um, we have major savings through repealing Obamacare. Talk, uh, we start the process of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid reform. Um, and it's important to remember, Social Security, Medicare, 
are on path to be insolvent. You know, in just eight years, Medicare will be in, could be insolvent, Social Security in 2034. Um, so it's really not that far into the future. If we don't do something about those programs now, start those reforms, then they may not be around for, for very much longer. So in, in conjunction with saving money, we're also putting those uh, programs on a path to long-term sustainability. Uh, some other reforms we, we look at, we look at civil service uh, compensation reform. That's, uh, you know, a major area where we kind of, we increase competitiveness so so employees may actually potentially be able to make more money, um, but kind of align it more with the private sector so that in the, in the long run it saves money as well. We also reject the uh, Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 that went into effect back in uh, February and so get rid of this almost $300 billion in, in, in 2019, $153 billion in discretionary increases. Uh, there's, we, we should be cutting a lot of these uh, discretionary programs instead of expanding them. Um, they really don't fall into the major role of the, or the constitutional role of the federal government. And um, they show favoritism to special interests. They're, they're really just programs we should look at eliminating or, or moving to state and local governments uh, the private sector. And at the same time while we're doing that, we're also uh, continuing to prioritize defense spending and uh, make sure that our, our troops have the resources they need to, uh, you know, fight whatever kind of conflicts we, we may unfortunately get into across the world and just really be prepared for anything. Uh, one other thing that we look at in this budget is uh, budget process reform. Steve mentioned that briefly. Uh, there's a wide range of, of budget process reforms that could be made that not only uh, make the process better and, and smoother and more transparent, uh, but would also save money and, and put us on that long-term path to uh, a balanced budget and, and sustainability. Thank you. On that point, I, I want um, maybe every, all of you, if you are willing to comment uh, briefly, um, does it matter to, ba to balance? Should that be a policy goal still? I think that is a question that we have to ask particularly this year because I believe President Trump's fiscal year 2019 budget um, um, diverged from that goal, which um, at least in the House uh, Republicans have been following for a few years now that they've only introduced budgets that balance. The Republican Study Committee does the same. Heritage follows this path. Um, is balance an important goal, and are there other goals that uh, are more important? Uh, I, th I think balancing should still be what uh, budgets that are portraying themselves as conservative budgets should strive for. Um, we're, we're, our situation is not getting any better. The latest CBO numbers show that we'll be up to 96.2% of GDP in debt by the end of the next decade. Um, we're, we're well on our way to being over 100%. Uh, in the next 10 years, if you combine Social Security and, and health care programs and interest on the debt, they're going to be taking about 88% of all federal revenues. Um, and, so, and so really the bottom line is that this path is just not sustainable. And if you continue to say, you know, oh, we'll worry about balancing the budget next year or five years from now or whatever the case may be, you know, I've been working on these issues in D.C. for about seven years now, and, and every year I've been reading the CBO budget outlooks. They've always said the uh, there will eventually be negative consequences on the economy and, and jobs and, you know, basically all aspects of, of American government if we don't get this debt problem under control, and, and we just keep kicking it off further and further down the road. So I, th I think the sooner you um, find a way to balance that budget or, or at least – make it the goal, um, then hopefully the better off we'll be and, and can avoid that negative 
uh, impact that's eventually going to happen. I think balance is, is, is important and should be the goal, but is anything, if that's the only metric you're measuring uh, the budget against, you can run afoul. And I think that sort of the difference between tax revenue and outlays, the, what's going out the door, is, is an important illustration of that. If, if, I mean, we can balance the budget by just raising taxes, and, but that's also not a good solution. It makes, it makes balancing harder because this, it slows the economy. It ta- diverts individuals' economic decisions uh, from them making it to the, how the government's making them by sending more of what you earn to Washington. So I think it's both pairing balance with an understanding that the problem is we're spending far much far more than than we can support the I mean we didn't get 20 trillion dollars in debt because we haven't taxed people enough it's a it truly is a spending problem did you want to add something well um look I agree with uh, with these gentlemen and I would simply say that um look balancing is important just because it's it's a goal that you know every, every American can understand. They have to balance their own budgets and so on, and the federal government should do so. Um, the most important thing is we make sure that the economy is growing faster than the debt. That's the single most important thing. You can't continue to allow your debt to grow faster than your economy, or else you end up like Detroit and Puerto Rico and Greece. So um, you know that's why we keep harping on the economy as such a big part of this. Um, it also matters a lot what you're borrowing for. You know, um, under Obama, we borrowed ten trillion dollars, um, and then the Congress, by the way. And you look back, to, you know, today, and you say, "Gee, what did we get for all that money?" You know, we got Solyndra, we got you know increases in food stamps and things like that that have no, almost no long-term benefit for our children and grandchildren. Um, under Reagan, you know, we tripled the national debt. We went from one to three trillion dollars in debt. But look what we got for it. We, uh, we won the Cold War. <laughs> that was a pretty big victory, right? I mean, what's the discounted present value over 50 years of winning the Cold War? You know, multi, multi, multi-trillion dollars. So that would certainly be an investment that paid off. We also, you know, got out of the worst economic rut since the Great Depression. So, you know, was that borrowing justified? I would say, yeah. You know, we got a lot for that $2 trillion of extra borrowing. Um, so we should really be attentive to what we're borrowing our money for. And one of the things I learned from reading your report that's sort of scary to me is, well, what we're going to be borrowing for over the next 20, 10 or 20 years primarily is to send money from young working people to older retired people. And there's not a huge economic return on those kinds of expenditures. I'm not saying, you know, that people who paid into the system shouldn't get it, but we should certainly try to find ways to uh, make those systems more affordable. Thank you all. I think, uh, Steve, you in particular raise another uh, issue, which is that um, when we think about what we spend and what we spend for and where that money comes from, especially when we're doing this spending in the form of debt accumulation, it also raises moral questions. You, you raised mm-hmm. uh, the issue of uh, children and grandchildren and how this will affect them. And um, they're not really participating in this political process right now where those decisions are being made that basically are mortgaging uh, their future. And I think that um, the emphasis from the panel here is right. We need to worry about growth. We need to worry about individual liberty. So uh, balance should not be the only goal, 
but it is it is a very important goal and that is why the blueprint for balance always strives to do that and it's even in our title um, and we also want to demonstrate to lawmakers that it is possible and not only possible but actually prudent to balance the budget and we can still do so without raising taxes in fact we can cut taxes more and if you look at it spending still grows under our blueprint for balance, what we do is slow the growth um, in spending. Um, Justin, can you talk a little bit about that, the, the, the importance of, the, that of spending is actually growing? Are we really cutting, or what are we doing um, to get to balance? Uh, yeah, so as Ramia said, we're, we're not just slashing and burning everything. We're not cutting all federal spending or anything like that. Uh, spending under this plan would still grow by over 3% per year. Um, it's, it's just about 2.5 points less than what the CBO baseline calls for. So um, we're, just, we're just trying to slow that growth so that we can get on to a more uh, sustainable path. And, and you know, I mentioned earlier, debt's skyrocketing under the, the current CBO projections, over 96% of GDP in just 10 years. Um, and so... I think as, as from an economic standpoint, as, as, as important as, as balancing is to us, um, slowing that growth in debt is really just as important. Um, and, and so that's what we've tried to do here. And, and um, you know, the, the first few years of our budget, debt does kind of continue to climb, and then it's, it steadies off and gets back on a downward path, which uh, is much better for us over the long term and, and puts us back on that, on that right track. And, and hopefully it's something that we could sustain through these policies. And the similar thing is happening on the revenue side. The, we don't, the difference between what the government brings in in 2017 and what the Heritage Blueprint would, would, would bring in in 20, uh, 2018, actually the amount of revenue increases by about $77 billion. What's being cut is the amount of tax revenue as a percent of GDP, which, so you can look at sort of, Depending on how you look at the numbers, you get a different picture. But the same thing, we're just grow, we're slowing the growth rate uh, in tax revenue coming in, uh, not actually having an absolute reduction in the in the amount of revenue that's being co uh, collected. And if you look out at the at the end of the ten year window, we actually return to about a historical average of revenue collection as a percent of GDP. So it's not even a, a massive tax cut in in sort of any real terms, it's just a reduction in what would have happened if tax reform hadn't gone into effect or if the TCGA was allowed to expire in those out years. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the specific uh, tax provisions that uh, you include in Blueprint for Balance? I know this is the first time that we've paired our spending proposals with um, specific recommendations for what to do on taxes. You just talk a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish there, and maybe if you could mention some of the most egregious um, um, examples of special interest carve-outs that Congress should be tackling. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, we take the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act as a really great first step and extend that uh, going out into the future. So that includes lower rates, higher standard deduction, the doubling of the child tax credit. Uh, it includes the cap on the state and local tax deductions. Or all, the, all the big policy wins that we got out of tax reform are, are extended permanently, including expensing, which is one of the big pieces that helps the economy uh, continue to grow at the, the faster rates that, that we'd like to see. 
But then we also look at some of the things that were left on the table as part of tax reform. And the, the large, a lot of those things are eliminating special uh, credits that are, that are used to hand out favors to, to businesses in the tax code. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole list of them in in the book. There's I think the two that I would highlight are a collection of um, of sort of green energy and energy specific credits. Uh, one of which being a biodiesel credit. We spend thirty five billion dollars over ten years, which is a dollar for dollar subsidy for for this these special fuels production. And it, it takes three agencies to enforce, and there's billions of dollars of litigation around it. It's an incredibly complicated program that, it, that is just a targeted subsidy, obscured in the tax code. And so it's, it's, things, like, it's things like this that, that we can both move the tax code in a more efficient direction so people aren't spending as much time complying with, with, the, with how to pay their taxes, and, and also just streamline um, and, and use that savings to then lower taxes for, for everyone across the board. Let me just um, add to that. I think that's a great point. And, you know, many of you know I worked with Larry Kudlow and others to help put the original kind of version of the Trump tax plan together. It obviously changed a lot when it went to Congress. But there was a lot left on the table in terms of the, you know, from day one we told Trump, you know, broad-based, low rates. You know, I learned that from David Burton right here, right? A broad-based and low rates. And there was a lot left on the table. You mentioned the energy credits and, you know, not only the, the ones you mentioned, but also the, you know, we give a thirty, a 35% credit to the wind and solar industry every time they sell a, a kilowatt of like, I mean, who gets that, right? I mean, who gets 35 cents off every dollar they spend um, when they sell something? But and I'll mention another one that I felt pretty strongly about was we, we made a really, really good decision to cap the, um, the uh, you, you know, you mentioned the state and local tax deduction, but we didn't do that for corporations. So corporate, why should... Why should a small business not be able to deduct their state and local taxes, but a big corporation should? Neither of them should is the answer. So, you know, there are ways to expand, you know, the, the tax cuts, as you're talking about, and, and quote, pay for them by just uh, broadening the base. Um, Justin, you want to talk a little bit on um, the spending side. What are some opportunities uh, now and maybe coming up where um, – those who care about fiscal responsibility can push these important reforms and uh, make progress towards achieving a more sustainable federal budget. Yeah, so, so I think the most immediate maybe opportunity is uh, the House is, is going to mark up a budget this week. Um, it's certainly its, its prospects on the House floor are probably questionable at best and um, even less likely that the Senate would take a budget up. But I think we need to keep the pressure on lawmakers that, that this is important. It is important to put a budget plan out there every year. Um, and, and if we don't pass a budget, we're really missing one of the best opportunities we have to start in, enacting some of these uh, major reforms like uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, because we have the, the tool of reconciliation included through the budget process. And that's uh, really the only way to get any kind of major legislation through the Senate right now because you can get around the, the 60 vote a uh, 60 uh, n number for to invoke cloture. Um, so, so really, without that, we're just kind of mailing it in, saying we're we're okay with not making any changes this year. Um, you know, we'll we'll keep kicking it to another year. So, so I hope that we can, uh, as as people who care about these issues, can can help build that consensus and and redirect Congress to uh, realize how important this is and how they shouldn't waste an opportunity. Uh, another opportunity is this uh, rescissions process that's going on in Congress right now. Uh, the first package was, you know, relatively small, but I think it's an important first step in kind of 
uh, reactivating that progress that process this is a process that's been used for for literally hundreds of years by almost all presidents up until recent time and so hopefully we can get this bill through the Senate and and keep building on that momentum and, and start going after some of the money that was passed in the 2018 omnibus bill um, some of that additional $63 billion in discretionary spending that was part of that deal. And then finally, just the appropriations process in general. Uh, this blueprint has over 100 individual discretionary policies in it. It's all divided up by subcommittee, um, and, and you can, uh, can Congress, members of Congress staff can basically go through there and, and pick whatever bill they're working on at the time and say, you know, this might be a good uh, policy rider or a good cut that we could make towards this bill is something we really don't need anymore. So I think there's a lot of opportunities coming up, and you know, hopefully Congress will decide to take advantage of those. Steve and Adam, do you see any opportunities for um, tax reform 2.0 or building on the current Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and um, any, any prognosis on what time frame we might be looking at or what opportunities Congress um, should use there, or is there any pressure that they'll be feeling now or in the future to to take the next step on tax reform? Well, we wanted, you know, we, we wanted to get, I mean, the goal is to get to a flat tax, right? I mean, that's the goal. We all want to get there, I think, you know, to a flat rate, single rate system uh, with a broad base. And I think, you know, all in all, um, this was a pretty good, you know, step in that direction. Obviously, we didn't get to a single rate, and we didn't get the rates down to 19% of whatever. Remember, Steve Forbes ran for on the flat tax 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, we wanted every, every, you know, reform we make, in my opinion, should always be oriented towards what's the goal. And the goal is to stop the double tax and, you know, uh, saving an investment and to lower the rates and to promote growth. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, room for, you know, uh, Trump 2.0, obviously making the tax cuts permanent, which is in your plan. Um, I would just mention one other thing that's getting some currency out there right now, um, which is kind of an interesting idea, which is to, um, well, number one, we should just eliminate all the Obamacare taxes, obviously. So that, But number two, um, we ought to think about indexing capital gains tax for inflation. So, you know, when you, if you have a 30-year asset that you've held, you know, it can be half of the gain that you've made or more, 70, 80 percent of the gain can just be the inflation buildup over that 30-year period. So, you know, why not, um, People should pay the capital gains tax on their real gain, not their um, not their not their inflationary gain, and that would be. I mean, can you imagine if we did that? You'd see so much um, turnover in terms of investment capital out of old businesses into new businesses. So it would be really pro growth. Is that something the administration could do? On Possibly. Itself? You know, I mean, there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of talk about maybe whether the uh, the president has the authority to define what quote, in the law, a capital gain is. And you could make a, I'm not a lawyer, but you could make a case that a capital gain is your gain that you make after inflation, not before inflation. Adam? It, well, it, on, on that point, it's such a no-brainer to, to index capital gains for inflation that it's something that Congress should should make permanent and as well as part of any tax reform 2.0, which is what, we've, what we're hearing is that the... the, the it, Kevin Brady and the Ways and Means Committee will be releasing something uh, before, sort of outline before they leave for August recess that sort of sets the broad tone for where they'd like to go. They'd like to go next. And I think that's that's really important. It's they're, they're trying to change the culture of of tax reform so that it's not 
every once every 30 years we, we have a large tax reform, but instead that we're addressing problems in the tax code on an ongoing basis. And I think that, that if we can change that culture in Washington, that'll put us on a really great, uh, really great trajectory. The, some of the things that I, I'd like to see in that Tax Reform 2.0 and along with making the reforms permanent uh, that are in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, I, I've mentioned a couple times expanding expensing. Uh, this is a, a, a change in how businesses treat new investments, allowing them to write off the, the large costs in the year they make them rather than having to spread them out over many years. It just makes investment much more effective in the United States. So expanding that to all investments, I think, is a really important piece of, of tax reform going forward. Uh, increasing or simplifying the, the use of retirement uh, savings accounts and adding a, a universal savings account type uh, system to, to help individuals protect their savings from this double taxation that, that Steve mentioned that, that's in the tax code. And then the eliminating the list of special interest uh, tax provisions that, that we've talked about that are included in Blueprint. And, and then there's a bunch of little things that are left undone in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Act, fully eliminating the estate tax, eliminating the alternative minimum tax, uh, truly simplifying the treatment for, for pass-through businesses. These are all things that I think we should come, come back to. Um, I'm going to ask uh, the panelists one more question, and then I'd like to open the floor to questions from the audience. So if you want to start thinking about those now, we have uh, a few uh, interns in the room that will come around with mics. Um, so this is a question uh, for all of you. As this... Um, Joint Committee on Budget and Appropriations Process Reform is doing its work, and they're listening to member concerns, and they're thinking about what um, what they might want to do with this opportunity to uh, make changes to the budget process. Uh, is there is there something that you think you'd like to tell them? What should be a priority, or what should be the the goal that they strive for? Um, and are there any things that you would want them to um, shy away from or stay away from, like changes that perhaps are being talked about that you uh, w want to warn them about so that they don't um, pursue those? Um, Justin, you want to maybe? Sure. Start? Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my first thought for the uh, Joint Select Committee would be, you know, don't aim too low. Don't do the easiest thing. Do, do the things that would, you know, make a bigger impact over the long term. Um, some of the things that we're hearing about are, are things like moving the, the start of the uh, fiscal year, moving the date for that, um, which, you know, I, I don't know if there's a huge objection to it, but I don't think that's going to make a, a really big change in the process or, or fix a whole lot. Uh, we've also heard about biennial budgeting, um, which, which certainly has a lot of supporters out there. Um, you know, the concern from, from my side is more if we're already not doing the, the budget process correctly, if we're not you know, doing what we're supposed to do as, as a Congress, then is, is budgeting less often going to solve that problem? Uh, so I think that's a concern that would have to be addressed. Um, on the other side, you know, kind of big picture things that I would, I would love to see come out of it would be um, pushing for a, a statutory cap on, on all uh, spending, non-interest spending. Um, that's one way that we could really get a hold of, of the spending growth problem and, and get things under control. Um, sort of more incremental things that, that I think could happen um, that would have a big benefit would be stopping the use of changes in mandatory programs. That's a major budget gimmick that's used every year to spend, you know, $10, 20000000000 billion um, extra outside of spending caps. Um, 
And so if we could just get that stopped, that'd be a good first step. Uh, the same with unauthorized spending. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year on, on programs that aren't authorized, uh, some of which have never been authorized, some whose, whose authorizations have lapsed for 20, 30 years. Um, that's not an effective and, and transparent budget process with, with correct oversight or, or anything that we're supposed to have in the process going on. So I think getting rid of those unauthorized appropriations would be a, a real uh, a good step in the right direction as well. Adam? The, I think it was, it was several months ago now, uh, you hosted a, a really fantastic event on the Swiss debt break as a model for something the United States should, should look at as a way to constrain spending. It's essentially a statutory spending cap. I think that was a really great sort of uh, sort of deep dive into what how other countries have actually implemented these these reforms that could truly uh, bring in bring down that growth rate in spending that's assumed year over year over year. The the other small thing that that is as the tax guy I have to I have to mention is uh, currently in the budget process we account for tax expenditures in this in this way where we count things that are good changes in the tax code and then subsidies that are in the tax code all in the same tax expenditure budget so things like a lower rate on the ca on capital gains and dividends which is just reducing double taxation or is counted as spending in the tax code is the same way that a subsidy for biodiesel credits are. And so I think uh, changing the baseline for tax expenditure calculation from what's now an income tax base to a consumption tax base could provide a lot of clarity as far as the differences between uh, what, what a true subsidy looks like in the tax code and what good changes towards re removing double taxation are and sort of moving those into two buckets rather than lumping them all together. Steve, um, you mentioned earlier that you like the Budget Control Act caps. Um, do you have any comments on why uh, Congress undermined them so regularly? And if they if if they were designed differently, would we have a higher chance of success? Well, you know, as I said earlier, the, <clears throat> the reason we got rid of the budget caps is because they were working, not because they weren't working. Um, you know, great minds think alike. I had a wrote a piece about a year ago in the Wall Street Journal where I just said I basically showed the CBO forecast, which is in your document. It shows we go from the debt right now is publicly held debt, which is what's important. That goes from about 80% of GDP today to about 150% of GDP by the year, I don't know, 2025 or something like that. I don't remember the exact year, but sometime 20, 25, 30 years out in the future. And so I just basically said, well, what if we just stick to, we have two threes, 3% 3 budget cap on spending, okay, and that, which I think was sort of what you guys were talking about, and 3% growth in the economy because CBO is only predicting 1.9. If you have those two things, 3% growth and 3% budget cap, then instead of the debt as share GDP going from 75 to 150% of GDP by the year 2030, it, go, it falls to about 40% of GDP. So instead of the curve going like that, it goes like that. So it, this really isn't that hard, right? I mean, we're not talking about blowing up programs and, you know, everything across the board having to be cut. All they have to do is basically say every program just grows at 3%, you know, which is hardly a cut. And doing that with increased growth, and, and you get down to the debt burden being lower every year and not higher. So we ought to think about this in those terms. Thank you. Do we have any questions in the audience? In the front here? <coughs> Andy? <coughs> Okay. 
Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about entitlements. Obviously, the unfunded liabilities in just two federal programs, Social Security and Medicare, are um, at least two times the current national debt. Uh, entitlement spending is what's driving our fiscal problem. And as Steve alluded to, one of the biggest effects of our entitlement programs, uh, particularly Medicare, Social Security, and Obamacare, is to transfer money from working relatively low-income people to retired relatively high-income people. And I was just wanting to, to uh, ask you to address what you propose with respect to the major entitlement programs in the blueprint. Justin, do you want to get started? And I'll sure, I, I can get started. Uh, Remain on Social Security would, would probably sure, have I'll much more that. details than I do. I, I'm not an expert on, on those programs exactly. But, uh, you know, we, we do make, first of all, for, for both programs, health care and Social Security, we would make changes towards the uh, eligibility age. People are generally living longer, so we think that should be reflected in, in enrollment for those programs. Um, we've also talked about uh, putting... Uh, income type requirements, you know, making sure um, that, that those people who are receiving benefits um, are those who truly need them, who don't have other alternatives for health care. Um, on, on Medicaid, we uh, would cap the federal contribution uh, to, the, to the program, and that would give states more flexibility, really, to uh, administer those programs uh, the, how they see is, as best. Um, again, just looking at uh, poverty guidelines for for these programs, uh, making sure people on disability insurance, uh, you know, truly have a disability where they can't work. Uh, just kind of structural and, and eligibility changes like that. Yeah, the big uh, driving forces behind our entitlement reform agenda is that we want to preserve benefits for those individuals who need them. Uh, but not uh, unnecessarily subsidize, especially the higher income individuals and also younger generations, because the redistribution that is going on right now is simply unsustainable given our demographic situation. And I think if we're really frank about it and look at what Congress did there, they basically promised benefits that made people like their lawmakers better um, without provision of paying for them. And that's the easiest way for lawmakers to do that is to put that burden off into the future so that the current generation, all they see is the benefits from government programs. What they don't feel is the cost that it, that it takes to provide those. And in looking at other countries that have a more that have more fiscal balance, but that actually have a much larger tax and spend burden um, than the United States does, although we are quickly approaching them in the spending burden. We just haven't made provision um, to tax our population uh, to pay for these programs. What you find is that you do have a much more expanded entitlement state. But it's also very difficult for a lot of people to access those benefits. Mostly the more educated higher income workers uh, know how to operate the system. These are very difficult to navigate systems, especially for lower income people. And that's one of the reasons also why we want to provide more flexibility to the states to design programs like Medicaid uh, in mind with the specific populations that they're serving. We're also concerned that these benefits are diluted towards a population that may be 
politically powerful, but it's not necessarily most at need or is even the target population for some of these benefits. Capping the federal allotment for Medicaid, for example, in accordance with the populations that certain states uh, serve um, would also allow us to help prioritize and set aside funds to uh, take care of particular populations like individuals with disabilities that in many states are being left behind as they've expanded their Medicaid programs to uh, provide benefits for a much broader population uh, rather than uh, those individuals that truly need them. And we also want to increase choice, the choice for people to spend their money how they see fit. Um, and also for them to be able to provide for more of their own uh, security in retirement and in healthcare through their own savings. But that doesn't mean we want to just leave people alone. Rather, we want to facilitate more private saving, like with the universal savings account that Adam discussed earlier. And, um, private retirement accounts instead of being completely dependent on the federal government which is mismanaging the social has been mismanaging the social security program for a very long time and on disability um, enabling more workers to have access to private disability insurance which provides benefits earlier does a much better job at uh, determining um, who who needs those benefits and can also be more flexible in providing accommodations and targeted benefits uh, when they're needed without trapping people in an entitlement program for the rest of their lives, but helping them when they need the help and then helping them also return uh, to the workforce again. So including a temporary component in the Social Security Disability Program is also a priority we strive for, which other countries have and that has worked very well. So um, there's a lot more detail in the blueprint. Thank you for your question. Any other questions? Actually, a, a two-part question. So the first is, uh, I very much agree with the, the, several of the panelists' comments about the rescissions package, it was, and it was good to see it pass the House. I am wondering about the Senate and uh, what the prospects are for the rescissions package there. And if, if they're not good, what can we do to encourage that the passage in the Senate, uh, and so we can get that that measure to the president's desk? Because I really do think it would be a good step in even though it's a modest step, but a good step in the, in, the, in the right direction in terms of spending restraint and getting back to that. And then the second question is, I'm wondering about the, um, uh, wearing my economist hat, the, the change CPI. I believe it's the case that most, most federal spending programs that are indexed still use, uh, for the most part, a traditional CPI. But change CPI, uh, my, for my... Uh, Remembrance is generally speaking a more accurate way of measuring consumer price. Scale would realize some, on the spending side of the budget in particular, would realize some savings, I believe. Is that part of the heritage proposals? Justin, you want to talk a little bit about the rescissions sure. prospect? Yeah, I can talk about the rescissions. Um, well, we have until Friday, till June 22nd, to, to do something or that money will be released uh, back to the you know, respective agencies. Um, I, I think the prospects are, are probably not great right now just because of the numbers in the Senate with uh, John McCain out. I think they can only lose one or two um, votes, and then Pence would still have to be a tiebreaker in, in that scenario um, in, in terms of trying to, to build support for that. Uh, probably at this point needs to come from the president and, and to really rally them and, and try to get them to move and, and 
obviously Senate leadership. Um, but, but you're exactly right. It's, it's a small step, but it's definitely a, a good first step, and it's something we need to get back in the habit of doing. So I, I hope they can find a way to, to pass it. Yeah, I think this rescission's effort is is very telling and revealing about what's really going on in Congress because they, uh, for the most part, lawmakers aren't objecting to the particular items in the rescission's package, most of which, if not all, are things that uh, where the money wouldn't have been spent um, anyways. But the uh, primary argument we're seeing is that we need to hold on to uh, these funds so that we can use them when we need to spend money on something else. And it's, uh, I think it's very telling example of um, the fact that they're really, lawmakers right now don't have, seem to have any interest in fiscal responsibility and what can we do about it? I think it comes down to the constituents to hold their lawmakers accountable and to really make their voices heard, to understand that um, we've actually fallen behind, we're, we're walking backwards, uh, we're not just not making progress in reducing spending going forward, but we're actually making our fiscal situation worse with the bipartisan budget deal um, and, uh, and, and, and discussions of potentially other entitlement programs that we're hearing from Washington right now as well, like a paid family leave program, for example. So um, the constituents there, I think, play a critical role in making their voices heard. So they need to get involved too. On chain CPI, I was in Sweden recently. They have a very effective uh, fiscal rule. So I asked them, how do you enforce it? And one of the most interesting things that I learned there was that their entitlement programs, including unemployment benefits, retirement benefits, other welfare benefits, they're not even indexed to inflation. So the way that they control basically the growth in their budget is by default, it doesn't grow. And in order, so it gives lawmakers an opportunity to um, to 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 raise benefits, um, to to uh, adjust for inflation. Although they don't usually describe it that way, but as I say, the benefit is is too low. We need to raise it. Um, but in the absence of uh, of their parliament acting, it's actually the budget shrinks over time. So if we had that kind of a situation, that would make. Uh, all of our problems that much easier. Uh, but what we have is built-in growth in the budget, automatic growth, including by using an outdated, and I agree with you, less accurate measure for inflation. So yes, we do include implementation of the chain CPI um, um, in our budget proposal. And Adam, wasn't that part of tax reform too? Yeah, so the part of the TCJA was to change how the income tax system uh, thresholds were indexed, moving to change CPI. And on the tax side, that actually brings in more revenue over time. Uh, th and so it, it just makes sense that this measure, measure should be implemented throughout the rest of programs rather than rather than just on the tax side, whereas it brings in more money, we can uh, sort of help constrain spending if it's used more broadly. And I think it then uh, supports Steve's point that, that we should be indexing the whole tax code, including the uh, the the, the um, indexing for for inflation on the capital gains um, side. That that this is uh, this should be a holistic uh, look at how we index the, all these programs. I agree. And on Social Security, we're still indexing for wage growth, which means that um, everyone who files for their initial Social Security benefit gets an immediate productivity boost, not based on their own earnings, but how wages have grown in the economy. And that has driven up a lot of the growth in the Social Security benefit. And so their uh, proposal um, is to um, use the cost of living adjustment to change CPI um, for certain income earners and uh, continue to wage 
adjust for lower income earners could called progressive price indexing, which sounds uh, rather wonkish, but what it would ultimately do is uh, target benefits towards those uh, populations uh, that need them uh, the most, and this is something included in the Social Security Reform Act that uh, Representative Sam Johnson introduced in 2016. Um, we're, um, we're out of time, uh, but I would just want to conclude by highlighting that the Blueprint for Balance is available online at heritage.org slash blueprint for balance. Uh, in addition to 181 savings and policy recommendations, we also have chapters on budget process reform, on uh, uh, reforming the tax code. We have an introductory chapter by Steve Moore, thank you, on the importance of budget caps and the Budget Control Act and how to build on that. And we also have a uh, chapter on priorities for 2018 that talks about welfare reform through reconciliation, um, influencing the current farm bill process that's still ongoing, and also um, infrastructure reform, as this was a big priority for the president, and we're hearing that there may be also a democratic bill introduced in the Congress. So we touch on really all policy areas. Um, and uh, there's also a list of analysts you can find online and in the back uh, for those who have further questions and want more detail on particular proposals and also especially for lawmakers uh, who want to work on including some of those proposals. And uh, lastly, I just want to thank our panel, um, Adam, Justin, Steve, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and thank you all for making the time and please let me know if you have any questions. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We're going to have one issue. Welcome. Where is it?